This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and with me is Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. This week we're going to talk about what to quiz investment trust managers on, what transaction costs are and why you're paying them, and why shorting isn't just something from the big short movie. We're joined by Simon Mollica from AJ Bell. Hi there. So Simon, you're always out meeting fund managers and quizzing them on their strategies. So recently you've been doing a bit more work with investment trust managers. So can you talk to us about what investors should be asking them uh, versus sort of a fund manager who, who would run a portfolio, say, for an investment, uh, run a portfolio for an, a unit trust or an OIC? Absolutely, yes. Um, investment trusts definitely come within our investable universe. Um, but as we do looking at any collective investment, we try to do it from a consistent, kind of robust framework. Um, so we use definitely the same research process. But as you say, there's definitely nuances that we have to consider within um, looking at investment trusts. So one factor we pay a bit more attention to, or we have to ask additional questions, is our people factor. So. Whenever we look at uh, an investment, we have to consider who's running the fund. Um, the people are very important. We have to look at the team, understand where the skill set's coming from. Now, when we look at investment trusts, the additional information and work that we have to consider is the board. So there should be an independent board um, working for the shareholders. Now, that's something that we then have to consider, and we have to look into um, how that board's structured, um, and what we really want to see is we don't want to see a stale board. We want to see diversification as well, um, diversity um, among those people. So they're bringing different aspects um, to the conversation and all being able to challenge as well. For example, if we saw um, a board had a CEO that had been um, responsible for um, the investment trust for, say, 20 years, and there were six or seven other board members that had also been in place for 10 years, um, and they'd all had a very close working relationship for that length of time, we'd start to really ask the question as to um, you know, whether they're all like-minded people and whether um, they're actually being able to challenge each other enough. And really, um, possibly unlike a fund manager where we'd like to see stability in their team, we'd actually like to see a bit of turnover in the board. So a new member to the independent board every couple of years is certainly not a bad thing. And do you also look at things that the board have done? So any areas where they might have challenged the fund manager or maybe even switched out the fund manager? Do you look at kind of recent actions from the board? Yeah, absolutely. We'll take the um, history of, of the trust um, into consideration, absolutely. So if they do make a change of the investment manager, um, we want to understand the rationale, the thinking behind that, um, why they felt the need to do that, and then check that we still feel the um, correct kind of objectives and mandates are still in place under that new um, investment manager. Obviously, we have the luxury of knowing um, a lot of these fund managers and fund groups as well so we probably have a view as well um, as to whether we think that's suitable um, so we're in a good position to be able to do that yeah absolutely how easy is it for individual investors to actually find out that information then um, very easy. Yeah, very easy. Um, let's remember that investment trusts are um, securitized. They operate on exchanges, so they have to um, report um, as is as with any company. So absolutely, if you go digging for the information, you can definitely find out. I think it, it, it might be worth just to quickly explain the difference between 
investment trust and sort of a traditional uh, investment fund, as perhaps everyone would know it, which mm. would be the unit trust. And so, all. yeah, absolutely. So you're referring to unit trust and OICS, as you just um, stated. So the difference really is, um, I think one of the key differences is the open-ended versus closed-ended structure. So an OIC, an open-ended investment company, um, it's not traded on an exchange. And if you want to invest in that vehicle, then the fund managers create new units or they redeem old units when people want to invest or disinvest. Now, the Investment trust doesn't have that luxury. They're closed-ended in structure, which means they have a limited number of shares um, at any one time on an exchange, which actually means you're working in the secondary markets and you're um, selling and buying from other investors. So the dynamic that creates is demand and supply, which actually means that the share price of an investment trust can deviate from a NAV, from the net asset value, which is very different to what an open-ended investment company um, will do for you. So the, the difference there and the important thing to focus on is discount and premiums for an investment trust. Um, so what we're really saying is that the share price it can be different to a net asset value, which actually means you could be, in essence, overpaying if the trust is at a premium um, on those assets, or underpaying if it's at a discount. Now, a very simple approach clearly is that you wouldn't want to buy something at a premium because clearly that would be overvalued. Um, but there are nuances around it. There are reasons why um, trust can be at premiums and discounts. So it's not quite as simple as that. And I think certainly a bit more research needs to um, go into place where, when you're considering why something's at a premium or discount. Um, the other thing just to bear in mind, and this kind of goes back to the board a little bit, is that what we really want to see is good discount control mechanisms. Now, the way the stock market works, there's always going to clearly be some kind of premium or discount on the things. That's just the nature of the beast. That's the nature of Mr. Market. Um, but what we want to see is that a board can actually try and control that to the best of their ability. So some discount control mechanism, some DCM in place, um, where what they could do is possibly buy up shares um, to create uh, demand or sell shares to, um, to create supply. And what that can do is then bring um, premiums and discounts back to the net asset value. The other thing that's an option is um, in place is some kind of exit plan for investors. So um, some kind of proposal where you can redeem back at net asset value um, on a two-year timescale. And that sometimes helps to uh, control the premiums and discounts as well. So where would these discount control mechanisms or... DCMs, I already don't like that acronym. Um, we won't use that again. <laughs> where would they be published for the kind of average retail investor to be able to find that? Would that be something in the report and accounts? or? Um, yeah, I, I, that's probably more difficult to get hold of for the average retail investor. And I guess probably your best place is to um, look at uh, independent research consultants' work or ourselves. Um, so, you know... If you look at a professional, that's the kind of work they will have to be doing behind the scenes. So I'd really kind of focus your attention towards that instead. And one of the other differences with investment trusts to other types of funds is that they can they can gear up, can't they? So they can borrow money. So when you talk to fund managers, obviously, it, you, as well as looking at the sort of the construction of the board, um, clearly you'd be talking to them about what how they feel about the market and what's in their portfolio but I mean how, how often do you talk about um, are you prepared to take on more decks clearly that must be a sign that they're they're quite bullish or, or if they're reducing their debt that perhaps it's a sign that they're a bit worried about things 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The two things we've already spoken about, plus the gearing, are really the three things we focus on mainly when we speak to um, investment trusts. So gearing is an interesting one because obviously it can increase the risk. Um, what we want to know is what limits are in place, so how far um, a fund manager is able to take that gearing. Um, so we want to know the limit because then we can really understand um, how risky an investment can be. Um, we look back as well to see what the typical range has been. Um, I guess what we don't like to see is just a structural gearing in place of, say, 20% over time, because clearly that's just really taking risk for risk's sake. Um, what we want to see is that they can use gearing depending on their opportunity set within their own investment research process. So let's take a value manager, for example. Um, what we'd like to see is that their screening um, process when they are finding good opportunities and the markets um, are throwing up ideas for them, that's the time that they should be taking on gearing. And conversely, the opposite is also true, that actually when they're struggling to find ideas, that's when we'd like them to reduce the gearing. So we'd really like it to interact with the investment process. We think that's the best and most credible way of using gearing. Um, the other thing we like to do is just talk to them about the facilities in place, because clearly cost of capital is very important. So what they're paying for that gearing um, is important, because because that's going to eat into returns. At the end of the day, that's what they're having to outperform. So if they have an old facility with a very high interest rate, which might be out of date um, in these times, then we'd be rather concerned by that. And we'd want to see them using rolling facilities that are taking access of cheaper debt if clearly interest rates are going that way. Because there's been quite a lot of instances of that, hasn't there, with investment trusts that took out um, really long gearing, which at the time seemed like a great opportunity to lock in an interest rate. But obviously, as interest rates have fallen dramatically and the cost of that borrowing has fallen, these people are now paying kind of three, four, five percent on some of their borrowing, which seems crazy compared to what they could get now. But a lot of these trusts are kind of locked into that, aren't they? Yeah, but I guess that's for the decision of the manager whether to take that gearing then um, if, if that's the only um, kind of cost of capital that they have available to them. We would definitely want to see um, cost of capital being a lot cheaper than that in this day and age. Um, and particularly if you think of the return opportunities um, in the markets going forward um, where you know we may see more volatility um, and more challenging to the types of returns we've seen in the last decade, we definitely wouldn't want them to be overpaying um, for interest rates. So you know we'd want to see them managing that as well and ensuring they're not being locked up into high interest rates. So the, another thing you really should be asking fund managers is about charges and, and costs on a fund. I know, Laura, you've been looking at this, haven't you, for um, into transaction charges. Can you sort of explain what they are? Yeah, so transaction charges are this kind of newer area that investors might start seeing on some of their fund statements and investment trust statements. Um, and they're not a new charge by any means, but they there was some European legislation that I will not bore people with. <laughs> but it basically meant that people had to publish these transaction costs. And they're essentially the costs of buying and selling stuff within um, the fund. So you'll pay certain fees each time, you'll pay some broker fees. Um, and so these are costs that you always paid. So when you looked at the end of the year at your returns after charges, these costs would have been taken off. But they're not included in the OCF, the ongoing charges figure, which is what most people look at when they're weighing up between two or three funds and comparing costs on them. Um, and so you Initially, I think investors thought, oh, well, this is just going to be a very small amount of money and it's just going to, um, it's not going to eat too much into it. So I don't really need to think about it. But as these transaction costs have been published, quite a lot of them are pretty dramatically high. And we've seen some where they actually eclipse the ongoing charges figure and they're actually much higher. 
partly that can be where you're buying a very cheap index tracker, for example, where the ongoing charge figure is very low. Um, but partly it can also be where a fund manager buys and sells a lot. That means that he's engaging in a lot of transactions and so therefore is incurring a lot more costs. Mm. So are high costs a bad thing if, if the fund manager is actually delivering you good returns anyway? you know, Are, are they worth paying an extra bit of money exactly so it's not uh, and i think we're definitely not saying that transaction costs being high is a bad thing per se we'd come back to our a thing that we always bang on about which is you need to look at returns after costs because it's pointless buying the cheapest fund on the market with the lowest transaction costs if they're massively underform, underperforming their peers mm. that charge more and, and incur more transaction fees i think um the element that investors might find this surprising that they're paying so much in these costs and have been over the years. And I think you've then just got to look at whether the fund manager is justifying these additional costs. Are they just continually buying and tra trading and almost acting a bit more like a trader rather than an investor? And has that resulted in higher returns? Or has a because the converse could also be true. Low transaction costs could be bad if a fund manager just isn't is sitting on things and, and isn't trading when perhaps they should be or picking up new opportunities when they see it. Yeah, I guess you well, should look at the style, shouldn't you? So if, if someone's like, I guess Fundsmith always talks about this sort of do nothing approach, mm, sort of buy yeah, and Nick hold. Nick Train had the same yeah. thing, yeah. But, uh, you know, if, if there's a sort of an absolute return fund that's looking to sort of do buy, to, to make profit when a, a share price will go up and also profit if a share price falls then you would expect them to perhaps be trading more, wouldn't you, more, more frequently? Because it's just the nature of their, their investment approach. And absolute return funds are some of the worst offenders in terms of their transaction costs being higher than their OCF, so the actual costs that you as an investor are paying being much higher than the headline figure that you think you're paying. Um, so then you've got to look at, particularly with absolute return funds, I mean, I feel like I'm always bashing them, and I'm not, but they a lot of the them have had such poor performance recently that then you've had that poor performance and then you've got really high transaction costs on top, and I think you've got to question whether that's actually worth it. And I, I guess let's also not forget, it depends um, where the fund manager is operating and what types of regions. So something like the emerging markets, we would definitely expect people to have higher transaction costs. Um, if there's you know more illiquid type markets, again, transaction costs should be high and I think we should expect that so you do need to be careful when you're comparing funds um, against funds make sure they're funds that are similarly married um, managed in similar types of markets as well and I also think so the issue the big issue with this European legislation is there's no one formula for how you can calculate transaction costs so different asset managers have picked different formulas of how they um calculate this actual figure so it means you can't look at fund a and fund b and say okay this one's transaction costs are this and this one's are this and mm. compare them like for like some people have got figures that come up with negative transaction costs wow. <laughs> which involves something called slippage which is a whole other issue that i'm not going to go into yeah. um but it it means that yes you've got these figures but actually it doesn't really make comparing fund charges and comparing funds any easier which is a bit annoying. We definitely hope that's actually going to change in the future. Um, but as Laura said, it's you know it is a bit of a nightmare. We found it when we started to investigate and analyse um, these costs when they first started to be published, um, talking to fund managers, and it, yeah, it was it was difficult. Even trying to understand what methodology 
they were using, um, they weren't even always sure in the first instance and had to get back to us at a later date. But the negative aspect of it was, yeah, very confusing for people. And I guess just, you know, let's always go back to the fact that people have always been paying these, so it's not a new thing. So we do need to be a bit careful about how we treat them and how we consider them. That's pretty mad, though, when you think about it. The fund manager themselves doesn't know how these costs are actually calculated. Yeah, I mean, I think I that shows how complicated they are. Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a minefield, yeah. So we've got, God, there's a lot of techie topics this week, isn't there? But we've had another listener question in, so this time from Johnny about shorting. So I'm sure everyone's going to remember the film The Big Short. Did you see it, Simon? I did. And you remember the scene where Margot Robbie explains complicated finance terms in the bath? Yes. <laughs> Dan's going to do that in podcast form. We so don't have a bath. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ruin the illusion, Simon. And I'm not Margot Robbie. So. <laughs> you're better than her. So you're now going to explain exactly what shorting is in a fun and exciting way where we don't fall asleep. <laughs> I'll try my best. I mean, it, so shorting is it, it's essentially betting that a share price will fall. So if, uh, let's say, a company X falls by 10%, you would make 10% profit. Um, so it's quite, it, on that sense, it's quite straightforward. But um, on another hand, it is is very difficult to understand the technicalities of how it works, and it's incredibly high risk, um, and it's definitely not suitable for the majority of the general public who want to bet on financial markets. Um, it's very different from investing. So, uh, the, the the sort of the, the technical perspective, you borrow shares from someone else, you then sell them in the market, and you look to buy those same shares at lower price at a later date and you keep the difference in the amount of money um, but if you use spread betting or contracts for difference which are known as derivatives um, you don't actually have to borrow shares from a broker you're simply speculating on the market price rather than taking physical ownership of these assets this sounds like smoke and mirrors yeah, yeah. but if you just think about it, so if you think all right I've spotted a company which I think is doing badly. I think its share price is going to fall further. You can understand why people will be attracted to wanting to place a bet. But if you get that wrong and the, the company actually suddenly does well or the, or, or the share price goes up, you can lose more than you initially invested. And the, the, the people who you're placing this bet with can come back and say, well, You've got to hold a certain amount of money as collateral. Um, you either have to deposit even more money as collateral or you close out your position and effectively lock in this loss. Um, this is what's known as um, a margin call. And, and, it, and this is why you, sometimes you can see companies which everyone hates suddenly jump up in value on the smallest bit of good news. It's because there's loads of people being shorting them have to or are forced to close out their positions and buy the shares. So the best example I can think of is Ocado, which I know... Laura and Simon, that you both used to do your shopping. Big fan. Yes. <laughs> you made a middle-class assumption there and you were correct. Yes. <laughs> so, Ocado started out as you know, delivering the food. You order it online, deliver it to your, to your home. And it's built this technology platform which essentially runs sort of the, the picking and sorting and then delivering um, capabilities for other retailers. So it, it's trying to position itself as a technology company. And everyone's going, this is ridiculous. It, it's just a guy in a van delivering your fish or something. So loads of people placed bets. They, sh they, they shorted this stock. Um, and then it won 
loads of contracts with international companies and this is clearly good it was doing what it said it was going to do and the share price went ballistic and everyone who placed bets against the company lost a lot of money but what about there must be times when the market gets it right oh absolutely so you, you've had things like debenhams carillion metrobank all of these stocks were heavily shorted now carillion has gone bust uh, Debenhams has gone into administration. Um, Metrobank has had to issue new shares to raise money and its share price has been brutally punished this year. Um, now, clearly that's, that's examples where the market was right. But as I sort of said at the start, this is not a place I think the average member of public should be putting their money into speculating about the movement of share prices. They should be looking at stuff from an investment perspective and looking at the fundamentals of business and say, where could it, how could it possibly grow in the future? If you think something is overvalued and therefore you think the share price could fall, quite often the market will work in unusual ways that share prices stay high on high ratings for much longer than you think. And just that the, the risk that you lose more than you initially put up um, can completely change people's lifestyles. And I've seen examples of people who are who are very comfortable financially and they've lost their home because of this. And it, it really is serious stuff. So we get a lot of interest, uh, particularly uh, the journalists on Shares magazine from readers about shorting. But um, And we understand there are places for it in people's portfolios such as if you want to hedge your portfolio or you want to profit if the market is, you know, say we're in a bear market, but you have to understand all the risks that come with it. And I, and I don't think most people will be able to do it successfully. And you can buy some funds that do it. So it's a strategy that originated from hedge funds, isn't it? And there's now some more normal retail funds that do so-called long short strategies yeah. which means that they can buy equities in the normal way but they can also have the ability to short so I guess if you wanted some exposure to shorting you could look at managers that employ that tactic but I suspect that most people that want to get into shorting want to do it directly themselves because they think they've got a, a great tip and they think there's an ability to make loads of money on one stock rather than wanting to trust it to a professional. It's true and, and, and another thing that we we sort of do here is that people say actually the shorters are sort of bad people because they're they're almost like bullies they're picking on a company um and and sort of spreading um negative comments on social media which is forcing down its share price and of course if they're shorting it then they will profit from this sort of dissemination of negative information but i would have to say that on on some occasions the shorters get it right and you should listen to what they're saying so there's this concept called a bear raid where someone will produce this sounds great yeah this sounds exciting someone will produce um, a very detailed document um that they'll have, they'll have done lots of research and it will outline say 10 points about something wrong with a company and they often put a, a sort of disclaimer at the top saying we've done lots of research and we will profit from uh, if the share price falls. So, they, you know, they're, they're trying to do a service in terms of expose things that they think are hidden, that are negative, but they're also going to profit financially. So you, you have to look at two sides. But you've had sort of bear raids on some smaller companies like Quindell and Globo, and, and even going back to Enron, you know, it's the shorters that have been sort of sniffing out the problems with these things. So 
whilst they're not always correct, I would always look at these documents because they're made publicly and see what they're saying because a company might suddenly respond to it. I mean, we, we did we did have an um, example of a company that did so was accused of being an example of fraud and then it admitted to it. Um, but then we've had ones that have just battered it off. So you know, these bear raids, are, they can be uncomfortable, but I, I would you know, have an open mind as an investor um, and not just ignore them. If Say if, you, if you're personally invested in a stock and you want it to go up, don't ignore the bad news because in order to have a, a proper rational view, balanced view, you need to look at both sides of the story. And so finally this week, we've had some new figures out about crypto scams. So Laura, you have all the details, don't you? All the details. And I'll sell you some crypto. Oh no, my God. I'm joking. <laughs> um, so yeah, new figures came out this week that show that last financial year, um, victims lost more than 27 million in Forex and crypto scams. Blimey, so Forex is trading currencies, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, foreign it? exchange. Um, and crypto is, Bitcoin is the most well-known of them, but there's loads of other um, cryptocurrencies out there now. So these figures are out from, they're a combination from the regulator, the FCA, and Action Forb, which is part of the police. But the average loss per person last year was £14,600. I mean, that that is just awful, isn't it? And that, I mean, that could be life-changing for some people, particularly if that's all their their savings and, um, you know, I could see people were talking about it, crypto in the office, I don't know, a year ago or 18 months ago. Literally everyone was talking about it. And people I know that don't get involved with financial markets were talking about they're having a little dabble on it. So that's the point where you know there's a bubble, right? When when you're a taxi driver and people in the pub start talking about it, that's the point where you know it's kind of reached its peak. And is this unfortunately what sort of triggers people who are running scams because they can see it as well? Is that what the regulators have found? Yeah, so I think it became the latest, most exciting thing to have and lots of people wanted to invest in it, which made it quite fertile ground for scammers. There were two other factors to it though. So the regulator did some research into people's attitudes generally when they're buying cryptocurrency. So when they're buying legitimate cryptocurrency, not not getting involved in these scams. And loads of people said they relied on friends and family for tips. They did little amount of research. They didn't believe in mainstream media reports of the price falling. Um, And quite a few people just admitted that they wanted a get-rich-quick scheme and they didn't want to miss out. So they had FOMO. Um, And so then... The other side of that is also for the scammers, because Bitcoin rose massively in price, I think uh, people are going to correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think from its from its low to its peak, it went up by about 900%. Mm. So it makes it easier for scammers to say, oh, you're going to make 200% returns and make that more convincing because people think, well, yeah, it did go up ninefold, so 200% doesn't seem outlandish. So it's just basically made it this really fertile ground for scammers who are targeting people that don't do research and want a get-rich-quick scheme um, and are relying on friends and family for tip-offs. How do you spot a scam? Is it it some obvious traits, similarities between all of them? So lots of it's on social media, so Facebook or Instagram, people anonymous messaging. Nothing good has come from a stranger direct messaging you on social media. So just delete that. Don't get involved in a scam that way. Um, But the more sinister thing is that some of these scams seem to be where friends and family will loop you into it. They think that they're on to a good investment. They don't realise they're being scammed. And they're incentivized to bring in friends and family. And so if one of your friends who you think is fairly switched on says, oh, I've invested and I've made loads of money, um, 
then bring your money in you might be less inclined to do your own research but so i guess my message is don't trust your friends and family mm, dear. <laughs> what a sinister message to end on I, I think we should just always really remember that if it sounds too good to be true it, it probably is um and at the end of the day we are massive advocates of long-term investing with a sensible approach and as george soros puts it it should be boring it shouldn't be exciting it should be boring is Simon admitting he's boring there? <laughs> <laughs> but thanks a lot for joining us this week. As ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And we will see you next week. See ya. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply. Mm-hmm.